Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Live from the Table here. I'm in beautiful Ixtapa, Mexico. My name is Noam Dorman. I'm the owner of the Comedy Cellar. Uh, Dan Natterman has canceled at the last minute, uh, which brings me ever closer to my throwing in a towel on his podcast once and for all. So maybe this guy to be our last guest. I don't know. I'm joined by um, uh, Periel Ashenbrand. Uh, Periel, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, hello. Um, welcome to the show. I don't, I don't know if he canceled at the last minute or if there was a miscommunication. Um, I mean, he didn't tell me he wasn't making it or if that wasn't clear to me until this morning. Would, would you hello? agree with the following? What? Would you agree with the following, that these are not the habits of successful organizations? Well, I mean, to be to be fair, Noam, I we don't need to be fair. We don't need to well, be fair. You, you didn't say, <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm in Mexico. And so I'll be joining via satellite. That has, not, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I'm here. Well, that's true. And you know who else is here? Jason um, Crawford. Jason Crawford is here. Hi, Jason. Hello. Thank you, you so give me much. We do the him. honors of giving him a, a giving him a good uh, a, a, a introduction up to Dan's standards. I absolutely will. Okay, go ahead. Um, Jason Crawford is the founder of the Roots of Progress, a nonprofit dedicated to establishing a new philosophy of progress for the 21st century. He writes and speaks about the history and philosophy of progress, especially in technology and industry. He's also the creator of Progress Studies for Young Scholars which is an online learning program about the history of technology for high schoolers. Um, and he was formerly a software engineering manager and tech startup founder. He's also a writer. So welcome to the show, Jason Crawford. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. Great to be here. How you doing? So uh, you, you first came across my uh, brain when uh, Coleman Hughes, you know who Coleman Hughes is? The uh, I know commentator, Coleman, yes, yeah, uh, he sent me a, tech, a tweet of yours, which I it, it, I'm looking at it now. It has 1.3 million views. Uh, I wonder if you had any inkling that you would get that kind of attention for this short, direct tweet. But it said, "Did any sci-fi predict that when AI arrived, it would be unreliable, often illogical, and frequently bullshitting?" And uh, I think you hit the nail exactly on the head there for anybody who's you know, taking some time with chat GPT and, you know, kind of like Captain Kirk questioned it and tried to get it to contradict itself like that. It says ridiculous things. It, it says things about me that weren't true at all. But anyway, so just, let's just start there. What's your, you don't have to limit yourself to that tweet. What's yeah, your, sure. uh, what's your current take on all this, uh, chat GPT AI stuff? So I just, you know, so I just published an essay on this, uh, this afternoon and the title of the essay was can submarines swim? So there's this famous quote from a, from a computer scientist from decades ago um, where he said that the, the question of whether machines can think is about as relevant as whether uh, submarines can swim, right? Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, you think about it, right? A submarine gets through the water, but it doesn't literally swim in the sense of flapping at some fins or something. And there's a lot of other examples like this, right? So when you, an, an automobile does not gallop like a horse. Um, an LED does not burn like a candle, a camera doesn't draw or paint, a telephone doesn't speak, um, you know, an airplane flies, but not by flapping its wings. Um, even a washing machine or a dishwasher, right, gets things clean, but not by scrubbing with arms the way a human would do it. So we build all these machines, 
And um, very often they do things that previously no machine was doing that maybe only a human or an animal was doing, but they often do them in a very different way, right? It doesn't just look like repeating the exact, exact same kind of motions. And so I think, I think that's what's going on with AI right now, um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's doing things that previously we thought that only humans could do, um, like coming up with poetry or fiction or, um, you know, or, or just more generally, you know, writing prose. But I think it's doing it in a way that's very different from the way that a human does it. And so I think there's kind of two basic mistakes you can make in thinking about this. One is to like anthropomorphize it and to think that, wow, it talked to me, it, it, it made a sentence, and therefore it's thinking, it has feelings, it has wants and desires, it has a hidden agenda, it's going to take over the world, you know, or whatever, right? Um, and then there's another mistake you can make, which is kind of the opposite mistake you hear in, in the, the debate going on right now, which is that, well, if it's not a human, if it's just a, just a program, or, you know, somebody said, oh, it's like taking the internet and putting it in a blender, and then it just spits out these random, oh, it's just a statistical, you know, word processor or something like that. And then you can think, well, if it's just one of those things, then it'll never do X, Y, Z things that people can do. And it used to be that people thought machines would never play chess. And then they thought, you know, well, maybe machines will never, you know, write, write fiction or create uh, works of visual art. And those things are, just, well, you know, computers have been playing chess for decades. And now we're seeing that they can write prose and they can create art. And there's even AI creating music right now. And so um, I think we just have to continually be... Um, be questioning ourselves about like, okay, well, here's a thing that we thought that only a human could do through our, you know, wetware. Can this actually, can this thing actually be reduced to math and logic in some way that maybe no, you know, we didn't expect and it took some genius to, to invent, but maybe it can actually be done. Maybe computers can do it even if they do it in a totally different way. I'm, I'm muted because my kids are making a lot of noise. Uh, they're, hu they're decidedly human. Um, they don't listen. So the, the, I'll do the second one first. So you talk about AI writing po prose, writing music. I've heard some of this music. Uh, I think it was a Google AI that did. It's pretty remarkable. I, I, everybody, I suggest everybody look it up and, and listen to it. But I'm still trying to understand whether AI is really writing prose and really writing music, or is it just disassembling all the prose that's already been written and reassembling it in some novel way that makes it look like it's writing. I mean, I suppose it's writing it, but you know, that it's creating prose. Similarly with music, um, you know, it's one thing to be able to learn music and then spit it back in some way. It's another thing to be able to like hear a sound or a rhythm of raindrops and it be inspired to create a new musical genre based, like, 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 would it ever get to that? So that's not a direct question, but you, you see where I'm going with all this. So go yeah, ahead. totally. I mean, so you ask, is it really writing prose or is it just sort of spitting words out? Well, you know, again, I think it's spitting, spitting words out. That, is it spitting new forms of pre-written words? You know, right. no, it's like that's spitting words out randomly, but it's sort of learning from other things that were written and probabilities of what word follows what word and just spitting it out. Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, what's well, funny, you know, there's that meme, uh, I think it's from uh, I, the movie iRobot, right, where the, where the human says, you know, to the robot, like, can you write a symphony? Can you, uh, you know, can you do all these things that only humans can do? And the robot says, can you? <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> it, 
so maybe maybe the robot is only spitting out you know words that it sort of it read a bunch of stuff on the internet and then it kind of mishmashed it in a different way. I mean, you could argue a lot of human writing is like that. Um, yes. But I think that so look, um, I, I think the important thing is to realize like yeah, it might be a different process, and there's some things that are absolutely cool, very different about what it's doing. Um, but it, the outcomes it's generating are really quite remarkable, right? And it's it's I mean, if you had asked me a few years ago, whether this kind of thing was, could ever be done by any kind of computer ever, I would have told you, I don't know, maybe not. Yeah. And now here it is right in front of us, right? Um, so here are some ways that it's obviously not the same though. Um, these chatbots, there is no, they have no sensory experience of the world, right? They have no, um, they, like their entire, you know, quote unquote understanding. And I think it does anthropomorphize it a bit to call it understanding, but I'll just use that word. Their entire understanding of, of the world is through words. So they understand associations between words. They don't understand associations between words and any sight, sound, uh, or, or, or anything that we would consider to be sensory experience, right? In fact, they have no direct contact with reality, right? They've never gotten out and seen anything for themselves. They've never had any uh, experience, right? They've literally just been processing words. It's really amazing what you can do just processing words, right? And I think we've all, the world has learned a lesson about what can be, what outcomes can be accomplished through just processing words and finding statistical correlations. That is an amazing discovery in itself. But yeah, it obviously, um, it obviously doesn't um, understand what an apple is the way that you do or a sunrise or, you know, or, or, or a symphony or anything like that because it hasn't had the sensory experience. Um, I mean, the other thing is, of course, it's not uh, trying to, it, it's not, it's words, in, in no way is there any attempt to make the words match reality, right? So it has no way to be truthful. In fact, um, you know, one thing I, I said in this essay is that these chatbots are, um, they're really bullshitters. In the technical philosophical sense of that term, there's a there's an essay by Harry Frankfurt called On Bullshit, and where he says like, the, t the key thing about bullshit is it's, it's different from a lie because a liar knows what the truth is and he's trying to convey something that he knows to be false. He wants you to believe a false thing. The bullshitter doesn't care what's true or false. He just wants to say things to, that, that you'll believe or accept. So he's just sort of picking things out to suit um, his purpose and it doesn't matter to him whether they're true or false. And so I think that's kind of how these language models and these chatbots are, are acting. They don't, they don't, there's nothing built into them that um, that gets truth or falsehood or has any kind of you know direction at that. Um, what they do is they come up with kind of statistically likely you know uh, words to follow other words. And um, but again, I don't want to. I, I think we could we could go wrong by saying, well, if that's all they're doing, then they will never be able to. I think all bets are off at this point. Will will an AI uh, of of this ilk be able to create a best-selling novel that everyone? you know, thinks is totally original and, and mind-blowing and an emotionally moving experience, I would not want to bet against that at this point. I mean, maybe not, but like, our, our minds have already been blown so much in just the past couple of years. I think I think it would be prudent to sort of like, not make any hard calls and just sit back and and, and, and watch and see what's about to happen. So so a couple of things come to mind when you're, when you're uh, saying all this stuff. So part of it, I'm just wondering, is that the technology is so beyond our ability to comprehend, I, I wonder if that uh, distorts it to us. So like, you know, you hear these stories about 
some they bring a a polaroid a polaroid camera to some place in some you know on that has never seen modern technology and people are afraid it steals their souls and they can't believe how it works or or even something is like people who understand how an airplane works and i know the laws of aerodynamics are not that complicated apparently they get it and it's it's almost like yeah of course it flies but for me, who really doesn't understand it, I still am in awe every time I see an airplane lift off. So this is so many orders more sophisticated than flight. I'm just wondering if there's some, like to the people who understand how this works, they are like, yeah, of course these people are in awe of it. But it's not, you know, it's not what they think it is. It, there's a, they're, they're, they're attributing a mystical quality to it. And I'll add to that, there's these articles recently about this Bing chatbot that was saying things like, or analogous to like I'm depressed or like and people are like oh they're troubled by it I'm like but it's just words like it's just a, a computer spitting out words and now you think because it spits out the words I'm sad or I'm uh, you know I'm bored that you really believe that somebody is sad or bored but they do believe it it's it, it, sure. it's somehow it's primitive so some something to that analogy is correct right part of what we're doing here is just that it's so beyond our ability to understand this we are those um, isolated people on an island somewhere seeing a, a Polaroid camera, you know, and we just can't believe it, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's an extremely human tendency to anthropomorphize things, yeah. right? And when you see something doing something, literally talking to you, I mean, it's an ex it's, it's just very natural. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we have to, I think we have to sort of resist uh, that temptation. And, and I'll give from, from the other side, I'm sorry, Perel, I'm sorry, from the other side, since creativity, to me anyway, this is my theory of it, is somehow somebody injecting some randomness into what's come before and coming out with his own take on it. And computers can generate you know, random things. I could imagine in music or in literature with some injection of something random it could spit out all sorts of like types of music we've never heard before. And then maybe one out of a thousand or one out of 10,000, one out of a million of them would be very, very pleasing to humans. I don't, I don't know that the computer could predict what would interest a human listener. I mean, but maybe I, with, enough, with enough feedback, right? If yeah, you started putting things out on the internet and people yeah. started rating them and then it yeah. could build a model of which ones, right? I mean, yeah. so that's one of the yeah. things these systems I, yeah. can be... Um, these systems can be built where, you know, you, you build one artificial intelligence to generate things. You can build a second artificial intelligence to rank them, and then you can run them in a loop where, you know, the, 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 the generating one keeps sort of putting things out there, getting scored by the, by the evaluator, and then, um, you know, just, it just learns to get through, through many, many iterations of that, which, of course, the programs can do way faster than we can intervene. Um, right now, of course, you know, things are not quite that good, and so a lot of the best... Um, hello. A lot of the best, uh, you know, outputs from AI are really being created together with um, humans in a loop, where the human is doing a lot of selecting and steering, and um, uh, you know, choosing kind of which of the best outputs, um, uh, you know, out of out of a bunch of different things. And, and there's a lot of back and forth. I don't know if it will always be that way. Um, you know, what? for a while in chess, it was like that as well, where you know, a human and a computer working together could beat any human and they could also beat any computer alone. Um, I think we've gotten past that point and now the computers are so good they don't need us essentially. 
Well, did you read about the, I don't care what I said, did you read about this uh, uh, average or, you know, average for a kind of a professional grade Go player beat the supposedly unbeatable AI that plays the game Go by doing something really dumb that AI would <laughs> never predict anybody would do? So that, that, that to me was very Star Trek. Anyway, Perry, I'll go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I think, you know, the great novels of, of you know, humankind, part of what makes them so moving is that they're nuanced and they're rooted in human experience, right? I mean, it seems that uh, a bot, for lack of a more sophisticated term, perhaps, could never achieve that by the sheer fact that that's the one experience that it can't have. I mean, something like chess seems like you could understand how with all of those sort of infinite or almost infinite possibilities, they're within a framework, right? You're saying that emotion is different than a, a, silly, you know, a, certain, a certain number of moves you can make. Right. And like you said about music, it's like, well, maybe in like out of a million or 10 million, it would accidentally hit all of those notes. But, but Jason made a good point, and then, and then it would begin to learn from its accidents what worked, and then refine that. And maybe at the same time, there's advances in neurology, and I mean, who knows? You can only imagine 500 years from now if the planet is still functioning. Yeah, I mean, even 50 years from now, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I think we are we've hit a point where AI is moving extremely rapidly. The progress of the last just four or five years has been amazing. Um, and uh, I think it's very, very hard to predict what the next few years are going to hold. And Perry, you're right that like a, a machine doesn't have that experience, but it has something else, right? So again, um, like I just wouldn't assume that because the machine doesn't have or can't do what we do, that it couldn't create some outcome that we think is necessary for that, right? Maybe it doesn't have, so it doesn't have the experience, but maybe somehow by reading everything humans have ever wrote, uh, which which no human can do, right? Mm. Then maybe it will come up with something amazing, right? So it right. can do things that we can't, just like we can do things that it can't. And who knows which which things are necessary and which are sufficient to create some amazing output. I I already think, and I I had arguments five six years ago with uh, friends of mine who got mad. I I'd already prefer to be diagnosed by computers than humans, and uh, I, I mean humans know. Yeah, like my theory is that it used to be the doctor was the guy who had basically the, the best memory in the town. He could hold the most things at once, and you're, you may be a little too young, but there was a time they would examine you, they'd go into the back, and they'd pull out these books that only they had access to, you know, these very, right. very, very expensive, and they, would, and they would diagnose you with the best of their ability. But now, um, obviously, it's, it's completely different. The, the, the worst computer exceeds the... The worst computer exceeds the doctor's memory infinitely. The, the computer can spit out a, um, a probability table of every single thing that these symptoms could mean and never forget a single one and then, you know, run through them one by one to narrow it down. And this is how doctors go wrong all the time where the doctors forget or they get older. Uh, I mean, there's a million different ways that I'd prefer to be diagnosed or or at least never diagnosed without the use of a computer over yeah. somebody spitting putting every single piece of data they have about me into a computer and saying to the doctor did you think of this did you think of that we had experiences in our own family where we had to go doctor to doctor to doctor before they were able to diagnose something relatively simple 
You know, they just didn't think of it. And when we told them, like, slapping their foreheads, oh, yeah, of course, you know. I had something yeah. one time Insane. called, uh, I had Ramsey Hunt, which looks like uh, Bell's palsy. And the doctor told me it was an ear infection. And next day I was in the hospital and I called the doctor. And I said, you know, I t and I told him I didn't think it was an ear infection. I said, listen, Dr. Kaufman, I, 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 I don't have an ear infection. It's like I told you, it's, it's something else. And my whole face is paralyzed. And he says, oh, fascinating. That was his answer. Fascinating. I'll never forget that. You never want that. to hear that from a doctor. <laughs> Fascinating. You, you, you never want to hear that you're an interesting case. Yeah, but of that course, if he had a computer, if he had a computer, he would have simply said, well, it could be an ear infection, but there's a chance it could be these other three things. So let me ask the question. So he didn't do that. Anyway, I'm, I'm talking a lot. What's your take on all that? No, that's a good idea. I mean, so we're far from uh, the point where the computer can diagnose you all by itself. That actually is something that does, I think, I would expect, require high-resolution sensory experience in multiple modalities. Um, but I do think that what, what you just suggested, which is coming up with ideas. So what the end, I mean, so the other reason I wouldn't want to be diagnosed by a computer right now without any human intervention is that these chatbots and, you know, the, the state of, of the, the art of these language models, they're very, they can actually be creative. Um, they're not always logical, and they're definitely not reliable with facts. This is the great irony, you know, sci-fi for decades, you know, kind of portrayed machine intelligence, like think of data from Star Trek, right? The supremely logical, um, you know, extremely intelligent, but he doesn't have any emotions. And now that we actually get the AI and it's like messing up basic facts and it can't make basic logical inferences, but it has this wild imagination. Um, <laughs> in fact, you know, we sort of thought that maybe the way, you know, you might have thought that the way things, the order that things would get um, uh, uh, automated in would be we'd start with like basic, uh, you know, manual labor. Um, and then we would automate the more sophisticated white collar jobs, you know, office jobs. And then finally, the last thing to get automated would be like art and poetry and music, if that could ever be automated by computers. And it seems to be happening in reverse. It turns out that the poetry and the, and the, and the art are like some of the first things that we can do. And robots still seem like very far away. Because because um, po poetry and art can't be proven to be a mistake or wrong or, you know. Yeah, right. It's you, right. There's no there's no strictly wrong answers. Right. Yeah. Um, but what but what we can do with humans and computers working together is exactly the kind of thing you suggested, where the computer comes up with a bunch of possibilities and uses a sort of more active imagination or a more, uh, you know, it's it's read more of the literature. Right. So the computer can read all of the medical literature and um and then it can come up with a very you know creative list of possibilities for what matches these symptoms and then the doctor can use a sort of filtering human intelligence to say no not that not that oh i didn't think of that let's right. run this test right that could actually be a very profitable way for these two th you know for a human and computer to work together for something like diagnosis at the current stage of, of ai development why aren't they already doing that that seems like so ego 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 right that's what i was going to say when you said that to the doctor like the last thing a doctor ever wants to hear is a patient being like what about this by the way periel we, they, studies have shown that male doctors are more reluctant to do it than female doctors i'm sure that's true i, I know you're sure i made that up but i know you would i knew, <laughs> I knew you would jump on that <laughs> go, go ahead well, jason <laughs> uh, yeah no i mean you say why does it why aren't they doing it already well i mean these things take these things take a while to to build and develop and, and get deployed right um We've just seen in the last few months, right, ChatGPT was released and kind of the, the, the wider world woke up to how amazing these things can be. And so now everybody's imagination is going. But 
it takes years for someone to then say, hey, I think this could get turned into this kind of product and figure out how to do it and then go quit their job and then do a startup and then raise some money and then hire some engineers and then build a thing and then get it tested and then to get it through regulations, right? Because anything in, in uh, it was going to go have any kind of medical diagnosis would probably get regulated by the FDA as a medical device and you'd have to go through years of testing. So, you know, these things always, it's like, you know, why didn't the very, you know, we, we, uh, we figured out some of the basic laws of electricity in like the 1830s and we didn't have light bulbs until and, and generators and an electrical system until the 1880s. So that took like 50 years, right? Like, why does it take so long for these things? Well, there's just a natural process of, um, you know, from kind of the science to the invention, to the demonstration, the prototype, the viable product, the business, the deployment. Um, Unless it's a COVID vaccine. Yeah, that's true. Well, so so COVID is a great example, um, I say, of what what the how fast the world can solve a problem when it becomes the world's number one problem. Mm. And when you don't just have like one random or a small number of inventors working out of their garage and nobody believes that it's ever going to come to anything, but you have literally hundreds of parallel efforts. Every lab that could that could possibly be working on the problem is working on the problem. There were, you know, we got yeah, sure, we got one or two, we got like two COVID vaccines within the first year, maybe four or five. But there were literally over 200, something like 250, I think, vaccine efforts all going on in parallel around the world. And then another 300 efforts to do therapies, you know, drugs that would cure it. And so, yeah, when you have 500 different projects all going on at once, a few of them will succeed very quickly. But it turned out it was ivermectin all along. Was <laughs> 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 staring us right in the face the entire time. I um, wonder that we have still doesn't work that well. It works pretty well. <laughs> I mean, ish. Well, I, I, let's not get sidetracked by that. But, I mean, we're, we're back to normal, aren't we? I mean, uh, would we be back to normal without it? That's pretty, that's pretty good, uh, pretty effectual. So, um, uh, now I lost my, my, my train of thought. Oh, so one of the things about uh, ChatGPT and all, and all the bots right now, they are locked down. I, I imagine it's very, very good... Uh, proactive, um, uh, what's the word, Um, preemptive measures, they are locked down. They will not answer any question that might have uncomfortable truths to it regarding religion, race, sexuality, all that stuff. But I'm pretty sure that there are some truths out there which will turn out to be true, or some things that people say, which will turn out to be true, that um, will disappoint us in terms of the fact that the universe was unkind and unfair. And at some point, I suppose, AI will have to be unchained to answer truthfully all the questions put to it. What are your thoughts on all that? You think people want to hear the truth? Uh, uh, if, if, it, if it tells them that they're smarter and more beautiful, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. No, no, no. I think you're, I, 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 that was a quip, but I think you're fundamentally, yeah. I think you're fundamentally right. Um, so, you know, one thing to understand about all these chatbots is um, there is the, the core AI language model that forms a statistical model of, of, of language and then can spit out, you know, text given a prompt. But these... Um, if you, you you basically don't want to give one of those raw as a as a chatbot because it's just too liable to say stupid things, false things, harmful things, toxic things, 
definitely things that you don't want to, you know, the reporters, um, you know, printing in the newspaper. So um, all of these AI chatbots, they go through a kind of finishing school where <laughs> once the core language model is been, has been created, there is another process to refine them and to train them and nudge them in the direction of being nice and friendly and helpful and truthful and not rude and not offensive and so forth. Um, and so, um, in fact, one of the one of the hypotheses that I've heard, the more the most compelling hypothesis I've heard for why is Bing's AI, you know, Sydney, why is Sydney so like relatively unhinged and saying these weird, <laughs> crazy things like compared to ChatGPT, which is better or there's, um, you know, there's there's other ones um, that, that haven't that are still in beta that um, but like one of the hypotheses is that its refining process was sort of done in an inferior and maybe hasty way. Um, and so, you know, and so we're getting something that's a little closer to just kind of like a core raw uh, language model. Um, but, you know, OpenAI has already announced that they intend to make something closer to the raw model available to people who want to do their own refining. Um, they've basically already said, like, yeah, we're, we're going to there's going to be a bunch of different um, uh, language models out there um, or, or AIs or chatbots or whatever you want to say. And um, they and different people will refine them for different reasons, right? And I think some of these will be like um, somebody wants to just train it for a specialized purpose, like a company, a large company might want to train an AI on all of its internal documents so that people could ask the AI questions about what's going on within the company, right? That's a that's a mundane kind of business uh, uh, purpose. But other people will want to train it to have their own ideology or religion or. Um, you know, espouse their own ideas or proselytize for them. And they, okay, so they don't like that um, ChatGPT, you know, has a little bit of a left-wing bias and it will, uh, you know, and it won't say anything nice about Trump, um, you know, but maybe you can get it to praise Obama. And, you know, somebody's going to say, oh, I want something with, uh, you know, I want a right-wing, somebody's already trained like a right-wing version of, of ChatGPT. Um, so yeah, you can do this, right? And people will. And I think, um, I think the future is not one enormous brain that we all talk to. It's rather a profusion of, of, you know, I don't know, thousands, millions, billions of AIs that are all trained for like very, you know, that, that each one has a different personality. And you pick the one that has, you know, the personality that you that is most interesting or useful to you at any given time. Is it a matter of time before they start getting canceled? <laughs> sort of, right? I mean, Bing already got canceled, right? And has been—they uh, say it's been lobotomized. I <laughs> I'm not in the in the Bing beta yet myself, so I haven't gotten to play with it. But I just read the headlines. I, I mean, there's all sorts of fascinating issues related, like you know, have self-driving cars, and then at some point, self-driving car is going to have to make a split-second split decision about what to do. Essentially when it comes upon one of these philosophy uh, hypotheticals about, you know, there's, there's three kids here and an old man there and whatever these, these things are. And I don't, I don't know what, as a result of the democratic process, we're going to have to decide how, what ethics these AIs are going to use when they have to make split-second life-and-death decisions. That's going to be a hell of a national conversation, right? Maybe. Maybe um, I sort of sus I mean I sort of suspect that 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 kind of problem is overblown. But uh, yeah, I mean it it might exist. Um, I've <laughs> well, heard it's, a take. It's, it, it's I'm sorry. It's overblown in a sense that these things will happen very rarely. 
but it won't be overblown in the way humans react to them. They, one person in, on planet Earth that, that gets killed rather than the kid or whatever it is, that, you know, that's going to be all we talk about. Yeah, that's for sure. That's absolutely. Yeah. But you know, that's the nature of the news, and that's yeah. the nature of the headlines, and the and and the you know uh, the nature of press and the way people talk about things. I am optimistic that self-driving cars will greatly reduce road fatalities, right? Wow. Which are oh, absolutely, right? I mean, I mean, once uh, I mean, first off, these self-driving cars are going through an enormous amount of testing before they ever get put on the road. Most of it in simulation, right? Um, I've driven in one of them. I mean, I've been in a, in a car with no human driver that took me through the streets of San Francisco. And it was, frankly, it was almost boring because it was just driving. It was just going forward and it stopped at the stop lines, stop signs, and it signaled its turns and it did all these, you know, I've had, I've had Uber and Lyft rides that were much, uh, much more harrowing than, than anything you're going to have in a, in a self-driving car. Are you sitting? And look, there's. Oh, no. I, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Finish. Are you sitting? I mean, there's 50,000. I've never seen one of these. Is there like. You sit in the back. You yeah. sit in the back. And yep. what's in the front? Nothing? Nobody. I think there was a steering wheel that was moving itself. Just. Oh, yeah, my God. Know. That's People would prefer to see a, see a robot there with his hands on the steering wheel. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, she would. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, I mean, there's no question that self driving cars. I mean, first of all, they won't miscalculate anything in terms of their you know, trajectory to get someplace before somebody else. They won't uh, be uh, distracted. They don't get nervous. Yeah, yeah, they don't get distracted. They don't <laughs> yeah. get nervous. They don't get tired. They don't drink. They yeah, they don't, don't get angry. Uh, they don't have ego. They don't have road rage. Yeah. There's so many, yeah, I mean, so many, so many, all, so many failure modes of humans, right? But They're here's the interesting like, question. Oh, Perry, look how fast I can make this Tesla. Yeah, they won't be trying to get laid. Right? But, but, but here is the interesting question. How much safer do they need to be in order for people to accept them? Meaning, like, if, I, if, if, if they were just, like, 1% safer than humans, the stories about tens of thousands of people dying in self-driving cars would make them totally untenable. Even, even if, if everybody could internalize the fact that they actually, on the overall, they were safer, you follow me, we wouldn't accept oh, yeah. it. What would the ratio of human deaths to to uh, automated driving deaths need to be before you think society will accept them? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, they're already rolling out, right? Yeah. There are cars in, in I think, at least three major cities that are, you know, taking people around um, without drivers. And I think the companies that uh, that are building them, like uh, Waymo and Cruise, have done a pretty good job of PR, and they've done a pretty good job of just, like, the actual uh, uh, safety testing. Yeah. I mean, part of the challenge of proving that a, um, that, by the way, that a self-driving car is safer than humans is that the, um, you know, the, the, the fatality rate is uh, of, of, in the U.S. for driving is something like one per hundred million vehicle miles. So if your cars have driven 99 million vehicle miles, you know, with zero deaths, you still haven't proved that they're safer than humans. So we're just, we're going to have to, you know, put them on the road, be as careful as we can about it. Um, but, uh, but we're just going to have to test them out um, and, and try them out. And then the next step is uh, we will be forbidden from driving ourselves anymore. That's going to be a hell of a thing, too. I love to drive. Yeah, and well, <laughs> well, you'll still be able to drive. You'll just do it, you know, on a closed track, right? In a, I mean, yeah, yeah like Rain Man, slow on the driveway. It'll be, <laughs> <laughs> it'll be uh, but it'll be a hobby, right? I mean, just I mean, we yeah. still ride horses, right? 
Um, and we still listen to vinyl and we still uh, light candles and we still, you know, knit socks and scarves and things. We still do all these things that machines now do better. We just do them. We do them right. for fun and for hobbies. Yeah. So that's what so, it looks like. Is that like that's like in a hundred years? We're like, remember when we had to drive ourselves places? Totally. And then not only that, but you had we had to yeah we 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 drove we drove to places ourselves and uh, we used the GPS you know to take us direct to the destination and then we would drive around for twenty minutes looking for parking. <laughs> right. Our grandkids are never going to believe that. They're going to be like, "You did what? The car didn't just go park itself." You didn't just but, get out, and the car drove off without you. Well, wow. Oh my god, that must have been so freaking annoying. All right, let's hit. Let's hit a couple other things. You're you're kind of a futurist, obviously. What what do you have a do you have a take on um, what year I would need to be born before I would uh, likely live to be 200 years old? Oh man, uh, I mean, I'm hoping there's someone today who will live uh, to be 200. But I, I mean, these things are really unpredictable. So I'm. I'm actually less of a futurist than I am of a historian, and I like mm -hmm. to look to historical, you know, analogies. But like the big picture view um, of history, actually, is that um, progress actually is not just exponentially growing; it's it's faster than exponential. Like the the like the very speed of the exponential curve itself speeds up over time. And um, I think you know it's it's just extremely hard to predict the coming decades. Like the faster things go the harder it is to see around the corner, right? Or to see through the fog of the future. Um, it, do, do we not expect to hit some kind of law of diminishing returns even on progress or no? It, it can't, it's not infinite, right? Or maybe it is, I don't know. Well, it's not infinite, but I think the, the diminishing returns, you know, the, the limits, I mean, really, the only limits are the laws of physics. The speed of light, the amount of matter and energy, you know, available to us within the galaxy, um, and we are nowhere near those limits. Uh, right. We still have many, many orders of magnitude to go. So, but I was born in 1962. I, I'm I'm probably a little bit uh, early, right, for that for the, the the rapid extension of life. But you never know. But maybe yeah, you'll be you the know. first one. I don't know. All right. Uh, on a total another matter. First of all, J J he has JasonCrawford.org where he has a lot of interesting posts. Um, one of them, I, uh, and I, I don't want to put you on a spot because I don't know when you wrote these things. You may not remember them. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that uh, speaks to me because I own a business was about Amazon and the culture uh, at Amazon. And I know people hate Amazon. Uh, I don't know if you think that's fair or unfair. Amazon's become a, you know, like a bugaboo. But I don't hate Amazon, although I... I, I don't like the idea that people were peeing in bottles, if that was actually true. But in general, I think Amazon uh, is a remarkable, um, positive force in the world. It certainly helped us in, during COVID and uh, helps us in, in, in so many different ways. And of course, as humans, we just take these things and put them in our pocket and, and that becomes a new baseline. Like it, that's uh, what we think. But what's your, um, well, first of all, you feel you feel the same way I do about Amazon. You're you're an Amazon supporter. Yeah, totally. So for context, I used to work there. That's why ah. I wrote an essay about the culture there uh, before I was. So you mentioned yeah, you mentioned my personal site. These days, I do most of my writing at, at on the Roots of Progress, which is my progress blog. But that that personal site is where I used to. So before I was uh, full time, kind of writing about history, 
and, and technology and progress, I, I used to be in the tech industry. So I spent almost 20 years um, in the tech industry. I was a startup founder. I was a software engineering manager and so forth. And yeah, at one point, a long, long time ago, I worked for Amazon and uh, for, for a few years. And so I got to, I got to see the culture there. Um, yeah, so I love Amazon. And actually, I think, um, I think they're actually one of the best loved brands. I think they, uh, they rate extremely highly on trust and um, uh, you know, brand loyalty and things like that. So I think actually most people like Amazon. But sure, I mean, they're a big, successful company and they're the most successful you know, online retailer. And so, of course, there are some people who love to hate them and they're going to get attacked in the press and so forth. Um, any, anytime anybody sort of gets sufficiently big and successful, they're going to attract haters. I think that always happens. Well, the, the, left, the left hates Amazon. I mean, the AOC chased Amazon out of New York. Uh, one of the dumbest things I've ever seen a politician do, uh, almost, you know, can't even be, I, I, can't even, I can't even come up with a logic to defend that. But um, they, they did it, so that, that has to speak for a lot of people. But anyway, one of, one of, the, one of the things that um, Amazon says, which speaks to me, it, it encourages everybody there to think as an owner. And I'll read from you. Um, um, young man, I'm on the podcast. Can you please? Uh, um, that's my son. Um, and uh, where is it? It says... Um, is essentially that everybody that works for Amazon is supposed to think like an owner and make decisions for the customer the way an owner would. And I, I just add to that, I, I've noticed as an owner of a company that unfortunately the only person who really truly cares about the customers in his heart and soul is the owner. You know, when it, when it, when it, when it, I'll even digress more. So much of capitalism is uh, analyzed in terms of having skin in the game financially and people risking money, whatever it is. But if you speak to entrepreneurs, it's emotional spin in the game, emotional skin in the game, which uh, is often the first thing they talk about. I don't even follow how much money I make week to week. I mean, I need to know that. I need to follow it at some point. But if one customer writes me about being treated rudely or was unhappy or didn't like something, and it cuts me like a knife. I, I, I can't explain to somebody how it, it affects me. I mean, the closest you can analogize it to is when somebody says something horrible about one of your kids behind their back even. It, wouldn't even, it would never affect them, but you, you just can't bear to hear it. Um, so this concept of thinking like an owner, well, it might be um, fanciful. I don't know if you can really get employees to think like an owner. That really is the key to having a good organization. And I've told all my employees at various meetings when we give them all the rules, I said, but you know, you can break any rule you want at any time if you can say you were doing it to make the customer happy. And as a matter of fact, you're responsible to break any rule there is. The last thing I want to hear is like I was just following orders, you know, because these rules are guesses. They're rules of thumb guesses at what the world is going to throw at you and likely we try to think of everything but there's always going to be scenarios we didn't think of and you're going to have to analyze those situations from the customer's point of view so that's a mouthful uh what do you tell us about amazon and how they managed to do that yeah um ownership is strong in the culture there i mean it was you know when i was there which is many years ago um I was there like 2004 to 2007, so it's been it's been a long time. 
Um, I mean, everything I've heard of it is that is that that ownership culture is still strong. But um, ownership kind of meant two things to me when I was there. Um, one is that you act like an owner about your own tasks and responsibilities, which means you know there's there's basically no excuse for not getting something done. If a team has a goal, um, you know, and they're dependent on some other team to for the data they need or the platform or the the access or whatever, you know, this it's kind of not an accepted excuse to say, well, the other team didn't deliver, so we couldn't deliver. You were supposed to figure out some way to do it, you know, um, whether that's get them to deliver the thing, work around them, go get it yourself, whatever, right? That, that was kind of the only thing that was respected. But then the other thing is this um, uh, is this this thing you're talking about being so difficult to create in employees, which is, yeah, really think about, um, act like an owner of the business, right? And think about what's best for the business as a whole. And ultimately, yeah, I mean, that, like, for the most part, that means what is best um, for the customer. How do you how do you foster that? Um, I mean, part of it is that you have to hire for it. Part of it is that you advertise that that's who you are, so people who want that kind of environment will 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 come join you, and people who don't want that kind of responsibility will will shy away. Um, part of it is to just recognize it in people when they do it, and reward them for it, and hold them up as examples. Right? It's all it's it's the same. It's ultimately the same as how do you you know any other question about company culture? It's kind of like how do you even still an idea. Um, but if you're the kind of person who, who does care uh, about the customer, then I think working at a place where you are encouraged to do that is extremely rewarding. Right. But yeah. You you're, 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 sorry, go, go ahead, ahead. Periel. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, um, you care about the customer because you are the owner. I mean, how do you get somebody who has to pee in a bottle and is getting paid 14 cents an hour to care about... Yeah, I mean, I can't really speak to the to the uh, you know to the fulfillment center employees. I never worked in a fulfillment center. I worked in headquarters. I worked on the software. So you weren't peeing in bottles. No. <laughs> well, you, you, <laughs> Although you they hit... did not they did not give us free soda. That was about the uh, uh, you know that was about the worst, which a lot of other you know tech companies were getting. So we sort of felt deprived. Um, and one there was there was one time when uh, one very. Um, uh, uh, ill-advised uh, executive at Amazon decided to save money. They were going to take the aspirin uh, out of the like uh, the, you know the kitchen or the or the, the storeroom. Um, so then you know if you had a headache, you just had to go home. That decision was very quickly reversed. You you, you hit on something that uh, jibes with my business wisdom, which is that it's very difficult to motivate people to do these things. You you really need to hire people who are like that already. And yeah. then your task is not to alienate them, <laughs> which is that, that is, that, which is, and, and you can alienate employees because they, if you don't appreciate them, if you, if you, if you, if you, well, basically if you don't appreciate them or, 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 or if in, in some way they, the, the people who like to be nice to customers, um, are feel, uh, like they're criticized for doing so or unappreciated for doing so, as I've already said, then they become alienated and they don't want to work there anymore or they might just disengage emotionally somehow, but then they're very unhappy. Um, and it's hard to screen for that. So probably the best thing to do, and I'm not good at this, is to let people go early when you, when you see right away that they don't do that. Another thing I've noticed is that um, it's easier in your initial phases of the business when the owner is seen working very hard, he's there all the time, he's struggling, he's, he's emotional about it, and that's inspiring in some kind of way. Um, it becomes much more difficult once a place like the Comedy Cellar is, 
you know, a mature, successful business with tons of customers and, uh, and um, we're trying to maintain rather than build. The, 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 the psychology of a business that's maintaining is completely different uh, than the psychology of a business that's, you know, doing stuff, trial and error, try this, try that, excited, high-fiving when sales, new sales goals are met. There's just so many things that, and these are the happiest times of my life as an entrepreneur, various, you know, the, the, not when we weren't making money, just the growing periods of, of this stuff. And I know all my employees were very, very loyal at that time because we were all kind of in it together. Now, I mean, after all, they don't make more money. Well, I guess the waiters and waitresses do in some way. They make more money when we're busier. But in general, they don't. And so these are, these are very difficult uh, um, psychological uh, uh, puzzles for, I think, business owners to, to, to figure out. And, they, and even the greatest of them, if you read about Bed Bath & Beyond and how they've just fallen apart, uh, these, these Harvard Business School types, they can't figure it out either, right? Business is hard. Yeah. Yeah, that growing versus maintaining mentality you talked about, I mean, Bezos had kind of had a, a term for that, right? He, the, the growing mentality is the day one mentality. And there was this, uh, there was this, you know, phrase at Amazon, it's still day one. And Bezos kept repeating that over and over, you know, until, uh, and, and people kept asking, is it day two yet? Nope, it's still day one. You know, well, what time is it? And he, <laughs> you know, and then they would say, well, I think we haven't even hit the snooze button yet. And yeah. so, uh, you know, he just drilled this into you. Like, we need to think about it like we're still at the very beginning of a long, long journey. Well, I mean, he, he, I have two uh, quick stories. One, one, one time, this is in the 90s maybe, I bought some really expensive Bose uh, earbuds or something. And when earbuds first came out, like four or $500 at the time. And I opened the box and they were empty. So I called up Amazon and they said, well, no problem, Mr. Dorman, we'll send you another box. So they sent me them again and I opened the box and they were empty. Now I have $1,000 worth of missing earbuds and I have to call Amazon again. I'm like, they're never going to believe me, right? So I called them up and they said, no problem, Mr. Dorman, we'll send you another pair. But if you wouldn't mind signing for them this time. And I'm like, no problem. They didn't question me at all. They sent me another. Another time I ordered an air hockey set for my kids. And I had six months, I think, to assemble it. That was the terms of the thing. And a year later, I hadn't assembled it. And then I went to assemble it a year later, and it was missing a key, a key component. and It wouldn't work. And I had to call up Amazon and tell them, listen, you sent me this a year ago, and they're never going to, like, what am I going to do? I'll just buy another one, whatever. And they're like, no problem, Mr. Dwarman, we'll send you. I, you know, they didn't even mention. They didn't even mention the fact that I was six months past the... Uh, the deadline. Now, maybe they look you up and they see how much business you do with them. Do they do that? Do you know? I think they do. Yeah. Um, and, and I think they're much more inclined to just sort of, you know, go with customers always right. If you're, if you're obviously a loyal customer. Yeah. Um, Who never, yeah. never pulled but, a fast one before. Yeah. Yeah. Or just like you've bought some stuff, you know, as opposed to you came in the, oh, what do you know? By coincidence, the very first time you uh, ordered anything, it was an expensive item that somehow didn't arrive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, Amazon's great. Uh, they're the only company that I have seen who gives you like, that notices themselves when they owe you a refund and gives the refund to you proactively without you even asking. Right. Yeah. Yep. So like, um, you know, they, they, they ship something for you internationally and then you get an email from them. It's like, 
Oh, we noticed that we uh, overestimated the VAT tax and we owe you a dollar and 38 cents. It's already been refunded too. you know, I mean, just like, or you were streaming a video from us last night and, um, you know, we noticed you had some trouble with playback. We're so sorry about that. Um, so here's a refund, right? I just, no other company that I've seen will, pr you, every other company, I mean, you know, you, you go to an airline, right? You have a, you have a flight and your flight's three, four, five hours late, right? And are they just going to call you up and say, hey, I mean, they know the flight was late. Are they going to call you and say, hey, we're so sorry, we're going to proactively give you? No. But if you call them, then they'll say, oh, I'm so sorry, here's a here's a refund, right? But Maybe. they make you do it. I mean, Amazon doesn't lucky, make you do it. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. Right. If you're lucky, they'll give you, you know, a voucher or something, right? But Amazon doesn't even make you do it. They notice when they screw up and they want to be the first to notice and they're going to proactively give it to you because it's the right thing to do. And And it seems pretty simple logic to know that that's the right thing for business to do you would think yeah. but, but it's it, painful right yeah it's exactly what i was gonna say it's exactly what i was gonna say there's a psychological thing in people's i'm not gonna I, i'm not gonna give that money back but it's it's painful yeah 300 people were on a flight that was four hours late and you want me to give them all 100 vouchers so that's what you just thirty thousand dollars in vouchers right there you know you want me to just drop that you know it's worth every penny yeah it's worth totally. it's I mean, I, I do stuff like this all the time in, in my business and everybody thinks I'm crazy and I'm, I'm convinced I'm convinced it's the right thing to do because it, there's no limiting principle otherwise. Either you got to decide you're going to treat people the way you'd want to be treated yourself. You can afford it. Most of these companies can afford it. Nobody's going bankrupt because they do this. And uh, or um, you have to really embrace you know, really creative logic on a, on a day-to-day -day basis in real time is, you know, create standards as you go along to rationalize why you did this, but you didn't do that, whatever it is. So, um, yeah. uh, so you want to say hi? That's my son, Manny. Hi. All right. Okay. So uh, listen, you're, you're quite an interesting uh, guest. You're not located in New York, are you? Uh, no, uh, we're in, uh, we just moved to Boston, actually, after many uh -huh. years in California. Well, if you ever get to New York, I hope you'll visit us. Why, why don't you um, leave us with whatever other than AI is the, the hot topic on your mind these days that would be interesting to people? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I am. So I'm, I'm currently writing a book. Uh, book is going to be about the, um, the history of technological and industrial progress, kind of what were the key discoveries and inventions that, uh, you know, created the modern world and gave us our, our standard of living. And sort of what should we make of all this? Like, is progress actually good? Can progress continue? That kind of thing, and um, yeah, one of the one of the topics I've been researching lately that I've been really interested in is like, why did it take us so long in, in historical terms to uh, to create machines to automate so much of labor when we had some kinds of machines for thousands of years, windmills and watermills and all kinds of things. It's amazing what they had in in the Middle Ages, you know, in terms of machines that could do work, and yet most work was still done by hand. So uh, obviously they had the idea to build machines to, to, to lessen our, our load of labor, but they, uh, they, but they weren't able to, to do it somehow or they didn't do it. Why did it take until the 17 and 1800s for us to you know, automate so much of, uh, of manual labor? That's a, that's a topic I've been researching and will hopefully write about soon. Do you have, you have a short answer? Yeah, I think it turns out it's, act, it's actually a lot harder than it looks to build a machine that does. Um, so the, the machines they had in the Middle Ages did very brute force motions. So like grinding grain, pounding hammers, um, you know, kind of, kind of very just like crude, high force, um, you know, sawing, grinding, pounding motions. And I think to do a lot of, it turns out a lot of human labor was um, fairly dexterous. So if you think of like spinning thread, 
very delicate motions of the fingers that are needed. And it was just much harder to make machines that were precise enough and, uh, and, and like built to high engineering tolerances. We needed metal, we needed gear cutting machines, we needed machine tools, we needed a whole manufacturing substrate and technology to build the precision machinery that could do uh, these kind of much more delicate uh, uh, human tasks. Yeah, we don't sufficiently, we're not sufficiently in, in awe of, the, of what it is we have around us. Uh, this will be the last thing I'll say. At the Comedy Cellar before, uh, everybody enters, they put their phones in one of these kind of plastic bubble wrappy envelopes that Amazon uses to send stuff out. And we're able to give these out by the hundreds every night. They cost, I think, less than a cent. And you look at them and there's their fashion, there's bubble wrap, there's printing on it, there's design, like there's, it, there's so much manufacturing, so much technology. There's, there's chemical technology that goes into this. There's practical technology. There's, there's fine tolerances of assembly. And like I said, there's, there's, there's printing. Just the printing alone, you'd think, would cost more than you know, a quarter of a penny to do. And all of this comes to us at a, at a price which is so cheap, it's basically free. The shipping, this is shipping, it probably comes from China. Just the shipping alone, you would imagine, would bring the, the price point above where it is, even if there's shipping just rocks. No, it doesn't. Somehow this system of capitalism is able to do this and it doesn't seem possible. And we don't sufficiently um, uh, appreciate it, in my opinion. We, we see the people pissing in bottles. Yeah, I get it. But. Right. That's uh, why absolutely. it's a quarter no, you of were... a penny, though, because on the other side, there's somebody p taking a pee break once every 23 and a half hours. It's worth it, Perry. <laughs> no, go ahead, Jason. <laughs> I mean, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, you're, you were singing my song, Noam. I, uh, I think we take the modern world for granted, and we take um, technology and industry and our, our standard of living for granted. And, um, and we absolutely should not do that. And, and a big part of my mission is to help people look around at industrial civilization with awe and wonder and gratitude for all of the problems uh, that people used to face that we that are so far behind us now, um, yeah. and the and the unprecedented life that we get to live. Yeah. Well, that's I could not think of a better way to end. Well, it's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed your your stay here uh, in in Ixtapa with me. And uh, um, okay, I guess that's it. Uh, Periel, please please give him my information. And of course, I, everybody comes to New York at some point. When you come to New York, please stop by the Comedy Cellar, say hello, come see a show, whatever you want. Um, Absolutely. I'll introduce you to some in interesting people here. Uh, pleasure to meet you. Yeah, you too. Thanks a lot. It was a fun conversation. Thanks so Thanks. much Take for coming.